Welcome to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, a podcast about geek culture by lawyers, with your hosts, Ben Siders and Kirk Damon. Today's episode is brought to you by the Imperial Detention Officers Association, Local AA23. Everything is under control. Situation normal. We had a slight weapons malfunction, but everything's perfectly all right now. We're fine. We're all fine here now. Thank you. How are you? And welcome back to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, the podcast that asks interesting questions that don't have any answers with your host, Ben Siders, that's me, and the other guy is Kirk Damon. That's Kirk, as in the captain of the Enterprise. We are IP lawyers and certified geeks practicing law in St. Louis, Missouri. You can find me, Ben, on Twitter at Benjamin Siders, and you can find Kirk at KirkDMN. You can follow this podcast on Twitter at LGGPod and find all of this information on our very modern and sophisticated (laughs) website, LGGPodcast.com. Yep. Uh, We're running a little behind on episodes right now due to general busyness, and it's actually – it's going to get worse before it gets better. Kirk and I (laughs) both have very busy September and Octobers coming up, uh, and in fact, we're both going to be in D.C. in the third week of October. Third week of October. Kirk's presenting at a panel there, and uh, I will be there to watch. So, um, if anybody's <laughs> in the DC me, I era, probably yeah. <laughs> if there's shoes flying from the audience or you know, rotten garbage. <laughs> if anybody's there, let us know. We'll we'll try and uh, we'll try and connect. Uh, so episodes may get spotty over the next couple of uh, months as we work that out. Uh, today's episode is going to follow up on our last episode where we mentioned uh, Dungeons and Dragons. Today we're going to talk about. I don't know, one of the weirdest areas of law we've come up with. It's, I don't say it's necessarily weird, but it's an interesting interaction between geek culture and the law in a very specific area of the law. Yeah, and it's it's not IP, so we're a little outside of our comfort zone, but we'll do our best with it. We're going to talk about um, the, the rules in uh, U.S. prisons, basically, governing the use by inmates of role-playing games and Dungeons & Dragons in yeah, particular. Dungeons & Dragons in particular, because that's obviously the one that's sort of most talked about, but yeah. a lot of this is going to apply to, I think, gaming, um, role-playing games, and sort of fantasy games, for lack of a better term, generally. So... And we should warn you in advance, this episode, uh, you know, we're talking about the criminal law, we're talking about Dungeons and Dragons, we're going to get into some details of some cases. Uh, so we may have some more adult and mature topics than we usually discuss here just because of the, the nature of the subject matter. So if you happen to be listening to this in the car with, uh, with young children present, you might consider um, pausing and coming back to this later when young children are not present. Because, or at least listening through it on the first day. I mean, it's not going to be, yeah. you know, like harsh language, I don't think any no, particular and, and like no, that. No, no gory details, but we are going to be talking about criminal cases involving some some pretty nasty people. Um, so there will be discussions of, of homicides and things like that. Again, no, no details, but if that's something you don't want your young children to listen to or hear, uh, now is your opportunity to uh, switch, change the channel and come back to this later. Yep. So uh, we have a whole series of cases involving prisons and uh, you know basically operating rules they have concerning uh, inmates acquiring RPGs. And RPG should, game materials in yes. particular. Yeah, this could be games, it could be game modules, it could be books, it could just be articles or magazines or things like that. Yeah, and one of the ones like is, you can talk about is like the, the magazines associated with games too. I know there specifically is a case involving White Dwarf, the game associated with Warhammer, mm-hmm. and Games Workshop games. There's probably cases involving Dungeon Magazine, I'm sure. one specifically for RPGs, but we, haven't, we didn't look into that. 
Yeah, and uh, and we should say at the outset, we are not uh, prisoners' rights lawyers. <laughs> By any stretch of the imagination. Uh, we're not even really First Amendment lawyers, although we do deal with the First Amendment in the context of IP rights, where it does have a place. Uh, so we're going to cover some issues with the First Amendment and how it and, and how constitutional law interacts with prisoners' rights. But we're not going to dive into uh, the, the nuts and bolts of the prevailing legal standards governing those things, other than to note that although prisoners do still have constitutional rights— um, the well, let's talk about this. The standard of review is different. Let's yeah, talk about how constitutional law, and we're not going to go too far into this, but Kirk, five minutes on how constitutional law is applied in a normal civil setting. Yep. So let's get into, I think, constitutional law. And again, most of what we're going to follow back on this is effectively law school. We're not constitutional lawyers either. Um, and so you're going to follow back on a lot of sort of basic law school. But what you bump into is effectively anything that involves the Constitution where Congress attempts to act. And the question is, is whether or not that's in violation of the Constitution. We should say it's broader than Congress, too. Most Congress, of the constitutional yeah. limitations... So the Constitution, fundamentally, is a, a list of things the government cannot do. Yes. Or actually... It's supposed to be a list of the few things it can, can do, do, with some also things that, by the way, that also means you can't do these things even when you are doing the other things. Yep. That's the Bill of Rights. It's, it's kind of been flipped uh, since, uh, since the New Deal, basically, where we, we all just sort of assume the government can do whatever it wants until a court says it can't. That's not how it's supposed to work, but for all practical purposes, that's how it does yep. work. Yeah, there's a lot of assertions that basically Congress will do whatever it does, and then the Congress will review whether or not those laws are constitutional. The, key the, court, will review. the court will review. Sorry. And these rules, as I say, most of these rules apply to most branches of government. Yep. So, definitely applies to Congress through the incorporation doctrine. It also applies to most state and local governments, which includes what we're going to study today: state prisons. Yeah. So, when we get into this, what we basically are bumping into is, particularly when you talk about the Bill of Rights and the idea of a government entity of any form potentially abridging the, the Bill of Rights, which again is sort of that affirmative statement of this is what the government can't do. Yeah. Um, or at least with maybe other ways to say that what the people can do maybe a better way of even looking at that um those the libertarian laws, to me is going to chafe at that characterization <laughs> well, we have a 10th amendment <laughs> the the thing that i think you you get into uh in conjunction with it is these are subject to judicial review now they're off it's not to say that you know the constitution the bill of rights is absolute there are certain restrictions to speech, there's certain restrictions mm-hmm. to essentially every element of the the Bill of Rights and the Constitution. That's a common misconception, I think, that people. I mean, because the, the Constitution is a Constitution by its nature. It is a framework for how the government's supposed to operate, and sort of an allocation of responsibilities and and powers. It is not an exhaustive list of minutia <laughs> yeah. of, of how things work, and so it says things in. It's broad, only two pages long. Yeah, it, it says things in broad, unqualified terms, like Congress shall pass no law. Law abridging the freedom of speech, but from the very outset, Congress passed laws abridging the freedom, <laughs> freedom of speech. speech. Yeah. And that's what you bump into. What, but basically, what it comes down to, and I think you'll learn this very quickly. If you end up taking constitutional law, you go to law school and sort of constitutional laws. If it's not required, it's usually one of the highly suggested classes. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what it was for me. The um, the thing that you basically bump into is that these are reviewed by the courts under what's called strict scrutiny. Yep. And this gets at when people talk about courts, and we've talked about this a little bit before on this podcast. There's two things to always keep in mind, and these things 
are, whenever you have a dispute and it goes to the courts, there are two very core fundamental things which are related to how you resolve the dispute. The first one of which is effectively who has the burden of proof. Yeah, who's responsible for making their case. Yeah, who's responsible for making their case. The usually way I always the put plaintiff. It, yeah, it's usually the plaintiff. And the way I always put what burden of proof means is in the event that you walk into court and nobody presents any information, which side wins? Yeah. And that's the idea. That side doesn't. The other side has the burden of proof. They have to disprove something, or they have to affirmatively prove something. The way it's described in law school is: if you're if someone files a lawsuit against you as the defendant, you're not legally obligated to do anything to defend yourself. It's all on the plaintiff to prove their case. And if they can't prove it, you're not obligated to disprove it. Now, as yep. a practical matter, you do because you want to win. But yep. but if the plaintiff, like you said, if the plaintiff just shows up and says, "I'm suing Kirk because he smiled at me when I saw him on the street today," as a defendant, I'm just going to say. I demure because that's not illegal, you yeah, know? exactly. And that's the kind of thing with it. And again, so what, in that case, the plaintiff has the burden of proof. They're the one who has to go out and affirmatively prove something happened. They also have to prove that that's something that happened is actually a violation of the law. Yeah. You know, and re- keeping in mind, the Constitution is a law. That, that's what effectively it is. Um, but the when we get into this idea of burden of proof, what you have in the case of strict scrutiny in conjunction with it is under strict scrutiny, the government entity essentially always has the burden of proof. And then you bump into, once you have who has the burden of proof, it's how well do you have to prove it? Yeah. Do I just simply have to prove it better than the other side did? Do I have to prove it much better than the other side did? And there's a variety of different sort of levels that are thrown out. And they all have fancy legal terms associated yeah. with them. Beyond a reasonable doubt being the one most people are familiar with. Clear and convincing evidence. You know, Which nobody knows more, what that yeah, means. Yeah. That means more likely than not. No, preponderance. Uh, preponderance yeah. of the So evidence. the standards are proof. Preponderance is the basic standard. Yeah. It means more likely than not. So something more than 50%. Then you've got beyond a reasonable Doubt, which oh, is clear the criminal. and convincing evidence comes next. Well, uh, that's between. So, yeah, beyond a reasonable doubt is the criminal law standard. It's not beyond all shadow of a doubt, which is a ridiculous standard, which yep. I don't think we actually use anywhere. But No, not really. Uh, and then somewhere between reasonable doubt and preponderance is clear and convincing evidence, and I don't think anybody really knows what that means, yeah. other than more than preponderance, but less than clear and convincing. So, yeah. that's, the, so uh, that's the standard of proof, which is how, how persuasive your evidence has yeah. to be. And they say, well, I can see both sides. It's about 50-50, so plaintiff wins. No. That's not the case for clear and convincing. Yep. And then there's what do you have to prove? And so for for strict scrutiny means that the government that you know basically when when you want to challenge an act of the government, uh, you know the courts are going to take a look at it. But because we have separation of powers, you know the, the court is an inherently weak branch. We don't have a judicial police force really in the U.S. I mean, yep. we've got the marshals, but you know if you've been to the courthouse, they're um, not, they're not chasing anybody down, right? <laughs> um, no, no disrespect intended. I love the Marshal Service, but uh, the, the, it's been incorrectly romanticized. By, by they're they're mostly I mean, most security. I mean, that's yeah. a lot of what they're doing. It's providing the security. security. They're, they're, yeah, they do all that kind of stuff. Um, but, you know, so the, the, the courts don't have a ton of ability to enforce their rulings. They really rely in our country on voluntary compliance and respect for what they do. So they've got to be careful not to be too aggressive in overthrowing things that the executive does, that the legislature does. And so the court system has come up with these different standards of review, which is basically if someone's challenging an act of Congress or something the governor did or a, a rule in a prison or even you know school policies, how closely are we going to look at that? Yep. You know, And for, for most things, they use what's called rational basis. If the court itself can come up with a rational basis for why whatever the rule is that's being challenged, has been enacted, uh, then they're going to leave it alone. So yep. this is why most of the government gets away with doing a lot of stuff yep. that, you know, when you read the Constitution, you'd think they shouldn't be allowed to do that. The one place that ends is when it becomes a direct 
sort of in the implication of the Constitution itself. Yeah. And that's when you constitutional bump into the strict rights, scrutiny. fundamental rights, things like that. Yeah. So um, you know, so for First Amendment gets strict scrutiny, which is the highest level, and I don't know the formulation offhand, but basically, you know, whatever regulation is put in place, uh, you know, must uh, I forget what how it was phrased, but there must be a compelling government yep. interest. Compelling and it must be narrowly tailored or the least restrictive way of achieving that compelling government interest. Yep. Uh, and what this means in practice for First Amendment is that that, you know, regulations governing the time and place of speech, if they're otherwise content neutral, are generally permitted. Yep. But regulations that discriminate certain types of speech in favor of others generally are not. Yeah. So the library can say, you know, the meeting rooms are available from 9 to 5. After that, we're going to go home because yeah. we're going to close. And, and all the doors are going to be locked and yeah. nobody's allowed inside. Nobody's allowed inside. Everybody's being treated the same. So that's a time and place restriction. Or we're going to protest, uh, you know, the president's coming. We're going to protest. Okay, we're going to set up the protest area and you're going to get a, a permit to be there so we know who's there. And we're going to keep the, you know, the potentially uh, incendiary groups apart for, 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 for public safety, right? These are all good reasons to do this. Yeah. But everybody who wants to show up and protest gets to. Right, yep. those are all fine. Versus, nobody can play Dungeons and Dragons in the meeting rooms at the library. Well, that's discriminating on the basis of the content. The of content speech. that's a lot harder to do. Yeah, now we're talking the content of the speech, and that's I think where we want to go with this and sort of talking about it is what we're talking about here is specifically content restriction. This is Dungeons and Dragons or role playing games versus other forms of content. You know, there's no question that prisoners are allowed certain books. They are mm-hmm. you know entitled to certain forms of media. You know, in conjunction with this, they're entitled to personal interactions in some cases. Um, but we're talking about the particular content being role-playing games. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's where we wanted to get into this idea yep. of sort of judicial review. I think the key thing we now need to get into is when we talked all this about strict scrutiny. It's not the case in prison. It doesn't apply in prisons. Yeah, so we're not going to get deep into the nuts and bolts of prisoners' rights. There is a whole body of law that governs this. But the, the short version is prisoners still have constitutional rights. But there's a Supreme Court ruling from, I think, the 60s that sets out a four-part analytical framework for when those rights are improperly and unconstitutionally infringed versus when they're not. And the reason, and it's, it's a, it flips the burden around. So in yep. a normal case, if you and I challenge the library's ruling that I can't borrow, I, I can't rent a room or reserve a room for my Dungeons and Dragons group, uh, we, we would win that case, right? Because yeah. it's it's a discriminating for no good reason. Yeah, strict scrutiny at that point in time, you have the library being a government entity. I mean, it's yep. almost a slam dunk slam win dunk, for us. Which is why nobody does that. A prison is different, and, and the burden would be on the library or the city to, to make their case, yep. to establish what the compelling government interest is, and to prove that this is a, a narrowly tailored solution. Yeah, to content neutral that. generally yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah, so. it won't have an on necessary chilling effect. Yeah, and it, it clearly does. Clearly I mean, does. <laughs> uh, prison is different. In prison, the burden is on the inmate to challenge the regulation and establish that there's no rational basis for it. So yep. it's more like that lower standard. And I'm, I'm really, really oversimplifying, but I, we've already spent five minutes on constitutional law, and I don't want us to get too far down into those yep. weeds. So, uh, but the, the real key with it is here is, is and, and I think what we want to be talking about is, the default position here is, effectively, the prison is right. Yeah, we just assume that they're right unless the prisoner can prove otherwise. Yes. Which you can imagine, it's really hard to do. Yep. Um, so we're going to look at a couple of cases. Uh, we should also note, we're, we're not, we're not, we, this may come across as us criticizing prison policies a little bit because as we get into this, we don't find a lot of this all that persuasive. Uh, but Kirk, have you ever run a prison? No. no. <laughs> other than I have five children <laughs> and three dogs, I, I haven't either. You might want to run one. <laughs> yeah, uh, it feels like that sometimes. But I have no idea what's involved in running a prison. Yep. So we're, we're not second guessing the administrative judgments made by these folks. We're just looking at this purely from like a theoretical, philosophical sort of standpoint as a legal framework and how these things 
things play out. And in some sense, we're tying this back to our last episode and the fact of, you know, that D&D is oftentimes misunderstood. Yeah. And that I think what a lot of what we're going to try to find in conjunction with this is how much of that is continuing to play out in this particular in a legal scenario. System, just, in a legal yeah. system. Like a social, the social yeah. attitudes about this are reflected in how it's being treated legally. And, and we picked this as the legal system because this is one of the few places where D&D truly hits up against a legal yeah, system. It's so, I'm, it still blows my mind that we have this weird little area. Yeah. So let's talk about some cases. Uh, Glassman versus Yates, Eastern District of California, 2011. Now, yep. according to the decision, uh, the inmate, Mr. Glassman, was incarcerated by the state of California uh, at Pleasant Valley State Prison in Fresno County. I only mention that because that's where Sirhan Sirhan was uh, incarcerated <laughs> after he shot Bobby Kennedy. Um, so Glassman ordered a copy of something called the Forgotten Temple of Therizden. That sounds like a very Dungeons and Dragons supplement. Yes, just just on, on the on the surface level, being imprisoned in California and having the guts to order something called the Lost, the Forgotten Temple of Therizden, and having other inmates know that you maybe have it, that takes some <laughs> that takes some chutzpah. Um, it is California. It is California. Maybe it's not so unusual there. Anyway, prison officials confiscated it uh, when it got to the mailroom, and they told Glassman that it was banned because it violated something called Operating Procedure 59RR14, which bans any materials containing, quote, coded messages or any other item that may be deemed a threat to the safety or security of the prison, end quote. Yep. Well, Kirk, just off the bat, which one of those two coded messages or threats to safety do you think Dungeons & Dragons materials implicate? Uh, neither, quite yeah, frankly, I, though I, I, I can see it being either. Yeah, when I first read this, I thought, well, where is this going? Well, let's find out. So uh, Glassman appealed, and he was told that the prison bans all magazines or articles relating to Dungeons & Dragons or any other trading card, collector card, or RPG because the materials contain hidden messages or codes, and it would place an excessive burden on prison officials to decode the messages so they could be safely uh, allowed in the prison. So let's just stop there. Does this make sense? I'm, I'm going to jump on one piece of it. Trading and collector cards, I mean, it totally makes sense. Because obviously those are not something that, you know, ha- you, you very readily could encode a message in trading cards because you're not sending the entire set every single time you send something. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's obviously part of it. Um, you know, if you look at it and you take any trading card game, there's different rarities, there's different associations. You could readily build a code around collectible cards yeah. that would be impossible for anybody not involved with the code to comprehend quickly. And we do see this happen. I mean, I intern at the U.S. Attorney's Office, and just, you know, this is all public information. You go to sentencing hearings, and they talk about how elaborate the codes are for drug transactions and things yeah. like that. So there are very sophisticated coding systems, linguistic systems that are developed by criminal criminal yeah. enterprises to, to do some of what they do and make them harder to prosecute. Now, so it's other, not a crazy concern. Yeah. Now, the other aspect you get into, there, though, is that this is a book. Ultimately, this is, you know, what we're talking about is the Forgotten Temple of Therizun. I'm assuming is a book, is a source book of some form. Yeah. Now, it may have other aspects to it. We don't know that. But I've treated it as it's a source book. It's, it's purely printed matter. Something, yeah. something along those lines. Um, and so now it bumps into the, you know, how would this contain something that's a hidden message? Well, you could technically, if somebody sent it to them, they could obviously hide a message in it. They could reprint the book. They could yeah, do something right? to I it. Could, I could go modify the, the, the D&D book to have some sort of a hidden message yep. that we've arranged in advance or something like that. It's, it's not... 
Yeah. It seems unlikely. But it's that, not crazy. I mean, you could do the same thing with any other book. Yeah, and that's the issue is it applies to any other book. And we'd say to here is that the issue with this is is that it bans magazines or articles relating to Dungeons and Dragons, collector's cards, or RPGs. So we have a very relating specific, to, right? Like, yeah. just an article about Dungeons and Dragons they can't bring in. It seems yeah. very broad. Yeah, it seems very broad, but it also seems very specific. And we're not talking about games. We're talking about RPGs and Yeah, Dungeons nobody's saying you can't have Battleship, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, stuff like that. And so we, we get into the, it feels like this is talking about the subject matter of role-playing games. It feels like a very specific content-based yes. discrimination that, that we're having trouble articulating what makes it unique. Like, what, what is this concern? And I guess I wasn't sure if they meant that it's easier to embed a code in a role-playing game versus, say, Harry Potter, or if they're saying that, as published, these works inherently contain hidden messages. Or contain codes. Now, they do contain codes. They contain tables That's and data. stuff like that. Yeah, data, but, I mean, data includes codes and stuff like that. And the other thing with it is, is if we get into the idea that these things could have been altered or how they were sent, okay, it's one thing to look at it and say, yes, we won't accept anything from an outside party. But it's going to order it straight from Amazon yeah. then. You yeah, know? if I order it straight from Amazon, it's sent to me, you know, stuff like that. Now, this is 2011, so how sophisticated it would be to deliver something like that to a prison is somewhat debatable. Yeah, um, but I mean, these rules have continued after this case. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, so, well, anyway, at any rate, Glassman uh, filed a lawsuit seeking relief on grounds that the prison uh, rule was an unconstitutional restriction on his right to free speech. Well, let's stop there. My yep. first thought on this is you're not you're not speaking. He's not speaking. You're asking to hear somebody else's speech, yep. right? So, I, you know, I'm not a free speech lawyer in this context at least, but, I mean, I think it's well established that, that you know, I guess from the prison, do you raise a standing issue and say, no, 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 TSR, I guess Wizards of the Coast at this point, yep. they're the ones who have the standing to assert a free speech case on grounds that we're uh, you yep. know, preventing them from having their stuff yep. distributed to – it's not a public place, but it's it's still public property. It's It belongs to the state. It's a state yep. prison, right? Yep, and, and there's – I mean there, there's precedent for the fact of publishers raising those issues of their materials being banned in prisons. Yeah. I mean Larry Flint Larry being Flint, the, out, yep. the outstanding example, I mean he raised plenty of arguments that he was entitled to distribute his speech, you know, as to what it was. And, and you have kind of got the issue there of, is this the right plaintiff, stuff like that. But they didn't get to that. We didn't it wasn't get to raised. it. The court didn't really pay attention to it. We're playing around with it just because this is like, yeah. we, we analyze these like law school questions, which means there's a question of standing here. I've, I've told you when you become a lawyer, it ruins everything. Even legal <laughs> cases are like, how come nobody raised the standing question? Uh, we've got a side note here. The, the, the defendant is John Yates, who is presumably the warden or the director of the prison. Yep. Uh, let's stop there. Why sue Yates personally? He's not the guy in the mailroom making these decisions, so why is he getting sued? Well, when he's probably responsible for it. Ultimately you know, responsible. Ultimately responsible why for aren't it? they suing the state of California? Because the state can't be sued. Yeah, 11th Amendment. You can't 11th do that, Amendment, right? Amendment, state of sovereign immunity. Yeah. Um, so he's coming after it and basically saying that it's not that the state has violated. Now, you could sue the state in certain aspects. It may also be, quite frankly, this may be a, a restriction of this particular prison. It may not be of the state generally. It is a um, common practice though, in the yeah. United States that you don't usually sue the government itself for violations yeah, of civil rights. A representation you see the individual representative, and that's how you get around the Eleventh Amendment yep. issue. It's a, it's a historical oddity that I, I you know, we're not going to go into. We're not going to go into, but it's it's there. Um, Yates moved for summary judgment, which is really just the government, uh, on three grounds. One, he's not the guy in the mailroom that did this. You know, somebody else at the prison did. So we've got the wrong defendant. Although at the same time, this is a, a stat, a, yeah. a, a statute is what it is. So he's responsible for enforcing that, that's, it. That's that's a lawyer's argument. Throwing that in there, just you know, just in case we we'll need to appeal that later because we lose on the main thing. Uh, two, his qualified immunity, which is the same kind of thing. And then three, the more interesting defense, it's not unconstitutional. I didn't do anything wrong. Yep. 
So uh, let's look at let's look at his reasons for that. Um, he says the prison has a legitimate interest in maintaining security, and RPGs contain quote violent imagery and coded language that can compromise the security of the prison, end quote, and that there are alternatives available. There's other games, reading material, other leisure activities yep. he can engage in. He also said that prison officials would have to read and translate, his term translate, all the RPG materials to ensure they did not contain violent imagery and then decode all the messages containing in the publication. Now, I don't know what he's talking about. Violent imagery, I do understand. Yeah, I mean, obviously I mean, there is violent imagery, and I think one of the key things to keep in mind with this, and we've talked about this in, in RPGs, RPGs have combat yeah. as an almost essential almost portion of them. Um, so, you know, there is some argument here, the fact that RPGs as are a unique form of entertainment in the fact that they they involve direct assertions of combat. It's a simulation of fantasy violence. Yep, and it's not just you watching it like it would be on TV. You You're are participating. You are acting it, it out. directing it, yeah. Um, so, you know, there is some argument there to say, yeah, yes, they do have violent imagery and they have sort of direct engagement in violent imagery. Yeah. They do arguably have coded language. I mean, something maybe in Dwarfish, you know, something like that. But at the I, same time, it's hard to believe that that's coded language that can compromise the security. That's the thing. Like, I don't see the connection between... Um, you know the, the the four names of Gandalf the Grey. You know, uh, and, and and you know whether I can spell my name in you know uh, the the Dwarvish language and how that impacts the prison. Yeah. It, it strikes me as being similar to. And we're going to get into this in more detail. It, it strikes me as being similar to if somebody had ordered a book written in a foreign language. Yeah. And they get to the prison, they look at it, and they're like, what is this? I don't speak, you know, pick a language. Just call it Spanish. You know, yeah. I don't speak Spanish, and so I can't review this and tell if this is something that's acceptable to pass on to the prisoner. We've got to get a Spanish language translator in to look at this. And I would imagine a typical prison uh, in the United States probably has translators from multiple languages that are commonly spoken here besides yeah. English. Now, if they, they don't, they can find one easily. Yeah. And they may also have something where well, where it's just, hey, they have a pre-selected list of this stuff is acceptable, it's all yeah. been cleared, and you can't have anything outside of it. But again, what, what I think we're really focusing on here is it seems like this rule is specific to RPGs and RPG-related materials yeah. in a broad sense. Who do you get to translate that? Like, who do you, you know, I think what they're saying is, I, I don't know how to take a look at this. Who do I get to come yep. in and say, yeah, this is fine. It's just a bunch of game rules and, and you know, FACO tables. <laughs> there's, there's no hidden messages yep. here, you know. I, I think they, they just they look at it and they don't understand it, and and they don't know what to do with it. So they're just saying no. Yep. Um, so that's the prison's uh, basis for not allowing it in. So then the burden is on uh, Glassman to prove that that there's no rational basis for this. And although I think, Kirk, both you and I, when we first read this, thought, eh, this is strained. You can at least see how a prison official who doesn't really understand RPGs will look at it and throw their yep. hands up and say, I don't know. You can say this is a rational basis. And I think even as we say it's RPGs, we can say that it could potentially be broader than RPGs. Yeah. We can look at this and say, hey, you're not allowed to have you know fantasy novels See, that's because we can't review them they may have specific violent imagery i mean let's face it there is a lot of novels out there which have themes we may not want prisoners to have many mm -hmm. of which are bestsellers and so it's one of those where you can believe that it's hey we need to know we, you know we, we make a very limited list of things which are available mm -hmm. recognizing that most things are not available um and that that's fine again what, what i found sort of the interesting focus about this was the general focus on this being rpgs and dungeons dragons in particular of why that limitation yeah, as opposed to it being fantasy 
generally, as opposed to it being, you know, any kind of, of fictional presentation, any kind of rule book or game book. Why RPG? Why this? Yeah, I think that's where we both had trouble really understanding the decision. It's not so much that these that these reasons don't, on some level, have some rational basis. It's that they also apply to all kinds of other things yeah. that, that they that they do permit. So they it may feels permit, yeah. arbitrary. So, so anyway, the prison also cited to f- uh, prior federal court decisions finding it constitutional to ban D and D materials, and the court in this case said, "Yep, those are all persuasive and show that yeah. uh, this is rational." So let's look at those now, uh, for this case as well. I think it's worth pointing out. There are five cases previously which basically find the same conclusion. Yeah. So there is a lot of grounds for this court to agree with them. But this, So this court cited to another case we're going to talk about, um, Singer versus Ramish, uh, a Seventh Circuit case out of Wisconsin from 2010. And this case, the one we just talked about was a district court case. Uh, the Singer case went up to the Federal Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit. So this is one step shy of the Supreme Court, folks. Yep. D&D <laughs> being discussed at the Seventh Circuit. Uh, in, in the Singer case, which formed the basis for the glass, and Glassman lost. We should yeah. just say Glassman lost, and he did not get to have his D&D stuff. Uh, but Singer had just had, uh, Singer was another prisoner uh, who uh, had the similar type of problem, and the, the Court of Appeals in the Singer case had upheld the prison ban on I'm going to read this. Quote, written material that details rules, codes, dogma of games slash activities such as Dungeons and Dragons because it promotes fantasy role-playing, competitive hostility, violence, addictive escape behaviors, and possible gambling, end quote. Yep. So the gambling is because you roll dice. And they're like, well, the yep. dice can be used for gambling. And, and quite okay. frankly, yes. Yeah, they, they, they can, can. be. They, they, they got a point there. Yeah, but um, you can... You can take a slice of bread and make a dice yeah. out of it. I but mean, we, we can also take the dice away from our, from all playing yeah, games, you can and warp. they're still playable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, the inmate argued that D&D is a healthy pastime and prevents inmates from getting wrapped up in prison gangs and assists in the rehabilitative process. But the prison disagreed, and since this case uh, was more aggressively litigated, Singer had a lawyer. Uh, yep. I think he got a private lawyer. They assigned one to him. Uh, but the prison uh, brought in an expert who had, quote, extensive training in illicit groups ranging from nationwide street and prison gangs to small occult groups, end quote. And he testified that fantasy role-playing games have, uh, quote, been found to promote competitive hostility, violence, and addictive escape behavior, which can compromise not only the inmates' rehabilitation and the effects of positive programming, but endanger the public and jeopardize the safety and security of the institution, end quote. Um, specifically, his claim was that cooperative role-playing games mimic the structure of organized gangs because you have a dungeon master giving directions to other players. Kirk. I just <laughs> don't quite buy the expert here. Yeah. Um, um, and dungeon my- master doesn't really direct the players. Last time I checked, the Dungeon Master was trying to be the opposition to the players. Yeah, he's more of a, a storyteller. Yeah. You know, he rolls the dice for the other people. But he's also the one who oftentimes is, you're all against the Dungeon Master. I mean, it's, There's you gotta extent. jump into like, you know, basic like, you know, army boot camp. You know, it's it's the the inmates or the, the inmates versus the warden. Um, you know, something like that. It's, it's many respects the players versus the Dungeon Master or the privates versus the sergeant. The players don't even get along all the time. Half yeah. the time, the players are fighting each other over who gets treasure and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, and so I, I, the thing that I think is interesting about it is I found this this argument that it mimics gang activity very intriguing. Well, if this is all it takes to mimic gang activity, you've got a group of people in a cooperative endeavor and one person's in charge. Okay, well, then how does that not also apply to a prison stage production of Macbeth? Yeah. You know, nobody can be the stage manager because it's going to promote gang activity. And that's the thing is we've got, it's, hey, that fantasy role-playing games have been found to promote. So one of the things I think associated with this is 
that does promote fantasy role playing. Obviously, it is fantasy role playing. Yeah, um, but to say that like that is inherently bad. It promotes fantasy role playing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Competitive hostility. Yes. Again, we talked about the fact that these have combat elements of it. It does promote some There's form of competitive of hostility. It does promote fantasy violence. Addictive escape behaviors. I found kind of weird as a statement. I I'm not kind sure of get what they it, mean there. If they mean it's promoting addictive escapism, like escaping from your reality, yeah. or it's going to cause people to try to escape from prison. I got the first one. I, I yeah. get. The second one, I do not. Yeah, I got escapism. And and again, he sort of said the same thing, is that, you know, hey, the, the, the person, the expert testified to these things, trying to go competitive hostility, violence, and addictive escape behavior. What I found sort of strange about this is from where? Where where is the expert pulling this from that these things are you know causing this and and what's it? What's well, he it has it in the from? next quote on our page here. He says that D and D can quote foster an inmate's obsession with escaping from the real life correctional environment, fostering hostility, violence, and escape behavior. End quote. Yep. So I guess are they saying that because he's going to sort of metaphorically escape from the reality of his imprisonment, he's going to also try to physically escape from the prison? Well, I or think just that they don't want him to have too much comfort while he's in prison? That was I, I really get the latter. I mean, quite frankly, I get the latter of the idea that, hey, this promotes the ability to escape from the prison by being in a fantasy world, which admittedly when you're doing a role-playing game type thing can be very immersive. Yeah, that's, all, um, that's the idea behind it. Yeah, and so I think there is, you know, it, it sounds like what they're saying here is not so much that this is direct encouragement of violence so to speak but it's allowing you to get into this fantasy where, where one violence is allowed yeah you know, i mean especially if it's required in conjunction it's, with it's the generally world. an integral part of the experience yeah and th- this is it's inappropriate from the correct correctional environment of a prison and and i get where he's coming from here i mean i have to admit i do get where this expert's coming from here this idea of fantasy escapism and if you take a prisoner who's supposed to be you know yeah. rehabilitated whatever you want to say purpose of prisons is but how's that different from fiction how's that different from reading harry potter and how's that different from into? i mean i don't want to offend anybody how's that different from reading the bible yeah and, and that's what i think we then bump into is it's you can argue that essentially anything fictionalized anything, or anything that which allows encourages me to, yeah to get immersed in a story yeah. is inherently escapism or encourages how's that different from what Watching football. But also, as I said, I think, you know, this is where you get into the Bible, encourages positive behavior. Yeah. And the idea that you're supposed to do is not that also escapism from the nature of this? They, they seem to think that if people are not forced to confront the reality of being in prison, they won't be rehabilitated. I find it difficult to that people would not confront the reality of being in prison yeah, if I you're think it's in kind prison. Of a, I mean, to pardon the fun, 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 inescapable. You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it, but again, I, th- I find it very interesting as to what this thing is, is because this argument makes sense. But the problem with it is it applies to so many other things thing. outside if, of D and D. If you accept this as a legitimate argument, which, which I'll, I'll just indulge for sake of argument, then I, I don't understand why this concern is unique to role playing yeah. games. And, and I, the one thing that I immediately jump onto it is you know you mentioned it earlier. Let's take performing Hamlet or yeah. reading Hamlet, Shakespeare here. Shakespeare is also violent, very <laughs> violent, and and that book's about active murder. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, and in that book, it's not. I mean, if you're if you're reenacting a book about murder, yeah. you don't have a choice. The story requires you to carry out the. Whereas in role playing game, you can just choose to be a pacifist. Yeah, and so th- that's the thing I think we really get into with this is it's. I don't find this expert to be unbelievable. I think that these things make some sense, but 
it seems to apply to so many yeah. more things than role-playing. Well, the inmate singer pointed out that um, this has never actually happened where role-playing games led to gang violence and escapism and other yep. kind of problems. Uh, and he said there's not a single instance of D&D leading to any of these issues. Uh, the court was unmoved and said, quote, The question is not whether D&D has led to gang behavior in the past. The prison officials concede that it has not. The question is whether the prison officials are rational in their belief that if left unchecked, D&D could lead to gang behavior among inmates and undermine prison security in the future, end quote. So basically, yeah, we know it hasn't happened. It hasn't happened because we're limiting how much access people have to it. And if we leave it unchecked, it could happen. And I think that's a rational thing to... And again, the the key line there, and I think it is, is the prison officials are rational in their belief. Remember we talked about rational basis? They're not saying this is the least restrictive way to do this. You know, they're just saying, you know what, it's rational. We're not dealing with strict scrutiny here. We're dealing with rational basis. And so what this court is finding is there is a rational basis to do this. And I mean, they're very specific as that's what the the, the criteria is. Again, what I find sort of interesting in conjunction with this is that their statement is, is left, left unchecked. It could lead to these things, even though it has not. There's then the argument to say, well, any of the other things which are allowed could leave to it if they're not unchecked. However, since they've not been unchecked, it hasn't led to it, yeah. presumably. Um, therefore, why should we not leave it unchecked and see if it does? We, we kind of, again, bump into this question of why are we single-outing role-playing games yeah, versus if, other things? If I'm the prison warden, I say I'm, I'm, I say, I'm not going to leave it unchecked and then see if I have riots and gangs. Like, mm. like we're going we're gonna to nip this in the bud because I, I'm in charge of running a facility where I have guards with families, prisoners with families. Yeah. I'm responsible for the safety of all these people. So, no, I'm not going to just... just you know, pardon the pun, roll the dice and see what happens. We're just going to say no because I don't know what this is. I don't know what's going to happen. Whereas we've had books in prisons for as long as we've had prisons. And and we're pretty comfortable with that. The Bible has been allowed in prisons, I suspect, as long as there have been prisons. And we have not had major, major riots. Yeah. And gang activity resulting out of reading the Bible, so we're yeah. probably pretty Nobody, safe. Nobody's in reenacting David and Goliath, right? Yeah, exactly. In, in the yard. It's not, and, and, hasn't been a problem. And, 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 and let's face it, the, the Bible tends to encourage pacifism. So I mean, there, there's well, a lot the of arguments there. I suppose the New does. Testament does. <laughs> This case was interesting because the the inmate singer got affidavit evidence from an expert, which. I was stunned when I saw that because he's in prison, first of yeah. all, so his ability to marshal resources is limited, and experts usually expect to be paid to testify. I've got to believe this is his lawyer. That, you know, his lawyer is involved in this and is yeah, somewhat supporting yeah. and this. And it may be that, you know, position. also it may be that people involved in publishing RPGs thought, well, why would we not want people buying our stuff? Yeah. You know, there's a, there's a lot of people in prison. They'd probably love to play something. Um, so uh, the testimony was submitted from uh, Paul Cardwell, who was the chairman and archivist of the Committee for the Advancement of Role-Playing Games. Uh, Cardwell testified that there are numerous scholarly works establishing that RPGs can have positive rehabilitative effects on prisoners. Um, Kirk, did the court buy that? No. No, they did not. Now, now one thing I think you bump into is exactly what I mean by role-playing games, because he didn't specifically say Dungeons & Dragons. He said role-playing games. And I think this is where we also bump into anybody who's been to the leadership seminars and other things Dilbert loves to make fun of. There are role-playing games associated with those. You know, you're going to be your boss for a while. Let's put you in this role-playing. You know, those types of things with it. That's also a role-playing game that's not Dungeons & Dragons. It's not what we think of when we think of role-playing games. Mm -hmm. One does have to kind of wonder what exactly he's talking about is conjecture with the expert. I'm going to be the, the devil's advocate for both 
sides, I think, in some respects. Yeah, and I, did, I didn't read through his testimony or anything for this. The, yeah. the court did acknowledge the evidence, and uh, I, I thought they were actually pretty deferential to it. They said it was, uh, you know, well-founded and credible and, and, and made sense, but nevertheless, they thought it kind of missed the mark. Uh, they basically said, you know, even given that, uh, you know, just because it, it can have positive rehabilitative effects, that doesn't address the question of whether it could cause or yeah. lead to gang activity or other problems. Well, and this is where I think we now get into the interesting piece of here, which is the way the court basically sort of weighs these two experts is they look at them. I think they say they're both reasonable, but then they find for the expert for the prison because they cite to prior cases mm-hmm. and prior other court cases that say D&D players have retreated into fantasy world and become disconnected yeah. from wrongdoing. Yeah, and, and this this is where I feel like this decision kind of goes off the rails a little bit. Um, they, they basically said, you know, there's plenty of prior case law, not about prison specifically, yeah. but about people engaged in criminal conduct that was connected to role-playing games. And particularly the fact that the role-playing aspect disconnected them from their wrongdoing. Yeah. Which, now we get into that idea of what's the purpose of a prison. If we look at it and we say, hey, what they're worried about, again, kind of jumping back to yeah. the state's position in this. We can't what, rehabilitate them if they won't face they what they've won't done face squarely. If they face what they've yeah. done squarely and stuff like that. Hey, if the answer to it is, is role-playing makes that substantially more difficult, we have a pretty clear rational basis, yeah. I think, at that point. And again, I would it's agree a low that, standard. Accepting the premise, I would agree with that. Yeah. I just am skeptical of the premise. Yeah, and, and that's exactly where I think we're going to go now, is now it's, so we, we've, if we can prove that premise, if we can come in and say basically, hey, there does appear to be this connection between playing D&D and and using it as an excuse for wrongdoing. Well, here's what's interesting is the proof in this case was not anything that the prison submitted. Yep. It was the court going and looking at other cases, yep. which I think is really unusual to say, here's the evidence, see this other case. Yep. So let's look at those cases. The court, and we'll go through them, but the court characterized them as, quote, persuasive evidence that for some individuals, games like D&D can impede rehabilitation, lead to escapist tendencies, or result in more dire consequences. End quote. So the first case they cited was Waters versus TSR. Uh, this is a case where uh, a distraught mother had sued TSR over the suicide of her son. Um, you know, it's it's a tragic story, uh, and I don't, we're not trying to minimize that. But in a legal case, you know, you're supposed to put the emotional aspects of it aside and just look strictly and with you know stark cold uh, reason at the facts. And and the court in the Waters case concluded that you know TSR could not be found to have any liability for a person's suicide. And this is not not unique to this situation. Generally speaking, courts are reluctant to attribute a suicide to somebody else. Well, and particularly reluctant to attribute a suicide to somebody who's not even there. I mean, yeah. in many respects, you're, you're talking about something which is they're attributing it to a book. You know, to yeah. somebody who's written a book, something along those lines. The important so. takeaway f- for purposes of the prison discussion is that the court concluded that there was no evidence that D and D was was had any yep. causal relationship to uh, to the young man's suicide. Yep. So that's the conclusion of the case. No liability for TSR. No evidence of any causal relationship. But the court says this is persuasive evidence that it's got a causal relationship. But it's got a causal relationship, and that's I think that's what we. What we're really bumping up against with these, and and particularly talk about this case in particular, there's a lot of issues as to, you know, standards of proof and things related to civil cases and stuff like that. But you have a case which found no causal relationship, which this court is now citing as showing a causal relationship. Yeah. And this is a trend I think we're going to see here. Yeah, and that one's unique because it's a civil case. The rest we're going to go through, there's three more, are, are criminal cases. But all three have one thing in common. The defendant... 
uh, is accused of capital murder that carries the death sentence. And in all three of these cases, the defendant is claiming insanity to nullify the mens rea aspect so that – insanity on the basis of D&D. The game made me do it. To nullify the mens rea aspect to get out of the the box of the death penalty. That's what they're doing. Let's just – I'm going to pick on your fancy term mens rea just for the people who may not necessarily have it. Mens rea basically means the mental state. So first-degree murder and capital murder, which goes along with the death penalty, you have to have the mens rea, the mental state, of intending to commit murder. Yeah, premed- it's premeditated It's premeditated murder, right? It's different from, I was in a bar fight, and a, and a guy, you know, and I pulled a gun and shot a guy. That's probably still homicide, murder too. It's more inflamed passion homicide, yep. you know, maybe even self-defense, you could argue, which may mitigate yep. that to manslaughter. Murder one is like, no, 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 I planned this out and plotted it, and and, and it's considered yeah. to be a worse crime. M- murder one, in many respects, is, is, is what is performed by every mystery, you know, crime novel yeah. villain. Murder one, yeah, yeah. You know, it's planned out, it's plotted out, it's intended. And the idea, in many respects, what these people are pleading in conjunction with these cases is, I'm not that bad. Yes, I yeah. killed this person. You know, yes, I'm going to prison for it, but you can't sentence me to capital to, to capital to murder. Death, you can't yeah. sentence me to die because I, I'm not that far gone. And the reason I'm not that far along that I didn't really plan this is because... The mental state, right? My mental state is disconnected from it, and my mental state is disconnected because I'm a D&D player. That's yeah. what these people are arguing. Yeah. So let's 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 look at these. So one one of these cases, um, the defendant it was a triple homicide uh, that the defendant was accused of. He argued that he was a victim of Satanism and occultism, and that his addiction to D and D caused him to be so disconnected from his actions that he had no consciousness of the wrongdoing. I'm gonna stop and you it, right there, yeah. just because I, I want to specifically comment. Remember what the court said in this case: We are worried that D and D causes you to be disconnected from your actions and have no consciousness of your wrongdoing. It's it's exactly what he. He's saying. Yeah. In it's this. not an it's accident exactly that that's what the prison expert said. Yeah. yeah. Uh, they even had a psychiatric expert testify and say that for legal purposes, he could be considered unconscious at the time of the killings, which is crucial in the defense because then an element of first-degree murder is missing. missing. Yep. And, you, and, and that, that's, this is all this is. This but keep is, in mind, this guy is almost certainly going to prison after he defends oh, this. He's it's, going to prison. The question is, is he getting murder one or murder two? Yeah. <laughs> murder two is not a death penalty. It's a life sentence. Murder yep. one, they then have a separate trial on, on the sentence. He's going to be uh, put to death or not. Uh, It didn't work. He was found guilty of murder one and sentenced to death anyway. uh, He appealed, arguing that he recently discovered brain trauma as a child. He has multiple personality disorder. And he actually argued ineffective assistance of counsel. The D&D defense was a dumb idea. Yeah, and that's I think that's the most interesting thing in here. And and let's just point out by the fact that the appeal didn't work either. Yeah, it didn't work either. But the the key thing here is we have a court saying D&D causes him to be disconnected from his actions and have consciousness of wrongdoing. The exact same thing he argued to the court, which he lost, which he then later argued was ineffective counsel and retracts it. We have a court citing the court saying this is proof of this. Another court cites this one and says, oh, look. Yeah, but it's like they didn't even read the case. It's seem, not what it says. We seem to bump into this connection of the court saying, "Hey, we have these cases that say there is this connection. There is this connection to the fact that you know D and D leads to disconnection from what your wrongdoing is." We have a second case that seems to say the opposite in the actual occurrence of what happens in the case. Yeah, then we've got we've got a Fourth Circuit case, Meyer versus Branker, a very similar a murder defendant sentenced to death, um, had sought to introduce evidence that he played D and D obsessively, that that made him be detached from reality, didn't know what he was doing. 
thing. Uh, again, this is a, a, a defense tactic to try to avoid the death penalty. Uh, the jury accepted the evidence in this case, but didn't care. They sentenced him to death anyway. Yeah. Uh, and the district court uh, later rejected his habeas writ, saying that it should be thrown out, and a court of appeals affirmed. So in this case, the evidence was accepted, but still not considered enough to mitigate a yeah. death sentence. So we have our third case of him argu- of them arguing, hey, it's connected. Yeah. And the, and the court finding effectively, no, it's not. But then yep. this later court arguing, yes, it is. Then in 1986, we have uh, an enlisted man at Fort Bragg, along with a, a, a co-conspirator, uh, broke into the home of an elderly couple, uh, mur- you know, tragically murdered them, and then stole jewelry, credit cards, and a TV set, later caught by military police and arrested. Uh, they confessed to the murders and, again, argued at trial that they were obsessed with D&D, and that's why they did it. Uh, again, the jury did not find it persuasive. They were, they were also sentenced to death. Yep. And in that case, he planned it out long in advance, too. I think the argument was they dressed up as ninjas and were doing, like, a ninja warrior campaign and so there I mean there does seem to be some kind of odd connection there but uh, again we have a case that's being relied upon to prove that D&D makes you murder and then we have or at least disconnects you from the fact that murder is bad and then we have courts saying no you're still mentally culpable enough to be put to death over it so going back to the original case uh, the the, the court in, in, in the Singer case is, is critical of the expert, Cardwell, for not really addressing the prison system's concerns with gang violence. They're saying he's kind of talking past uh, the court, uh, the prison's expert and talking about this rehabilitative effect, but you know we don't, we don't find that persuasive because according to these cases, they're persuasive proof that it can cause these problems. But these cases all seem to say it doesn't matter. Yeah, and, and the thing that what the court seems to be saying here, and I think the thing that's interesting about this, is they seem to be saying people do make the connection that D&D could cause you to do things. Yeah. And that's what these defendants are saying in these cases is they're making this connection that D&D made me do it, for lack of a better term. You know, what they're really saying is by doing the D&D, it's a, and sometimes you can say the D&D is a symptom of me being, of you know, the fact that I am disconnected and it allowed me to become further disconnected. Um, what, again, what I find so intriguing about this, and I think we, this is where we both agree, is we look at this case and we say, hey, we have two competing experts, and I think the court does a very good job of sort of saying the two competing experts are difficult to decide between. Yeah, they both make good points. They both make good points. But then their, their deciding factor for why one of them makes better points than the other is because these four cases support his position, when the answer is, is those four cases present his position, but the outcomes of them seem to actually not yeah. support As it. a threshold matter, for evidentiary purposes— other court decisions and other cases aren't aren't evidence. Yeah, those aren't facts. You know, uh, and if you read the cases, they don't support the position. I don't think all that well. Uh, plus, I think you know the, the judges have to know, right? If if you look at these cases. Everybody charged with with murder one yep. is going to argue the mens rea element. Well, there's going to be some reason it's because why because this mens rea element is a very critical element and a very hard element to prove. Yeah, it's the easiest one to, to, to disprove, yep. right? Like nobody else knows what's in your head, so I'm going to get some experts to say uh, that, that I was crazy. And whether it's D and D or something else, he just got fired from his job that day, and so he was you know in a disassociative state or something like that. I mean, if any of you watch like the Making a Murderer or or any of these sort of um, you know true crime shows, there's Always some sort of, you know, we it traditionally called an insanity plea, but it's really just, you know, nullifying the mens rea element so you can't get murder one and you get a lesser charge. Yeah. And, and, and again, I think the thing that to me is very interesting about this is it's we're looking at this thing and saying, and, and I, I guess, you know, let's sort of take it all the way to the end point here. 
I don't think the court necessarily is wrong in this case. You know, the, the way they come to it and say, is there a rational basis to ban these I things? I think legally they're probably legally, fine. They're According pretty clearly to the legal framework, this is probably how it's supposed yeah. to come out. Because the standard is the so standard low. Is the standard is so low. The doesn't have to. But what we seem to bump into and what we found interesting about this and why we want to talk about it is it seems like the standard is for D&D in particular and for role-playing in particular, whereas the standard could apply to other things, which it doesn't which seem permitted. to apply to and are permitted. Well, we saw like, like Texas, for example, you can have Mein Kampf in prison in Texas, a book written by a brutal dictator while he was in jail yeah. <laughs> about overthrowing the government, right? Yeah. Like, that's fine, but you can't have Game of Thrones because it has maps. Yeah, which is Maryland, by the way. It's Maryland, um, yeah. But the, the thing with that is, it's, you look at these and it sort of seem kind of arbitrary. And what we thought about this, and this is where we wanted to get into with this question, I think is an end point. How much of this ties back to, one, people don't understand what role-playing game is. I think that's a lot of it. And two, it ties back to the 80s of, this is all about occult and Satanism yeah. and bad. The moral panic. The moral panic. I, and I think I think what we have is a resourcing issue, that you've got a prison that's got to sort through stuff being yeah. sent in. And they're looking at this, and I'm going to go back to my uh, translation analogy. You know, if, if somebody sent something into the prison that was written in, like, say, an obscure language that nobody in the prison Ancient Egyptian. Know. Ancient Egyptian. Sanskrit, right? Something that's not widely spoken <laughs> in California. You know, it's not like it's Spanish or German where you can find somebody who speaks it. You yeah. know, that's probably... You have somebody in the prison who speaks Spanish, quite frankly. I mean, yeah, they probably, probably have to have somebody. Yeah. Um, but, you know, where are you going to find someone who speaks um, Sanskrit, right? Yeah. That's not... Or, or, or uh, uh, Old English, you know? You're yeah. not going to find that anywhere either. There's like five people. So, you know, if, if you had a book written in a language like that, I, I think it'd be reasonable to say, well, we, we can't... We can't find somebody to do because then everybody's just going to order stuff in Sanskrit, and then we got to go through and look yeah, at all this. Yeah, and that's stuff. the idea. Is I think there's there's something to be said for the idea that these are complicated rule books. There's a lot of data, and there's a lot of material in them. There's filled with tables and tables and stuff like that. There is a very good, reasonable yeah. argument. I think that this is a resourcing issue. They just simply can't go through. And it's it. different from thumbing through a copy of of you know of Gideon's Bible that confirmed that there's nothing in there that that shouldn't yeah. be. You know. Yeah, or even the. A copy of Harry Potter, where again, yeah. like the text of it's gonna be pretty obvious if it's yeah. modified. If it's straight from Amazon, all right, I know what it is. Yeah, you know what it is, you know where it's coming from, you know what it says. Um, and so, you know, the, again, treating the fact that we gotta keep in mind. You know, and when it comes to prisoners' rights, this is a rational basis. There probably is a rational basis yeah. here as to what we've got based well, upon the resourcing. The, the resourcing issue is not an illegitimate legal argument. I mean, no. we, we do we do look at the burdens that applying these rules place on. Excuse me, the government and the public, uh, and, and look at whether the you know the benefit really applies. I think that's not the official legal framework that's taking place here, but I think that's part of what the court is looking at. Is look if if we say you have to go look at all this stuff, you know, we're we're not going to say you're not allowed to look at it. And so if we say that the people are are the the, con- the practical consequence of ruling in favor of the prisoners is to tell prisons if somebody wants to play a role playing game, you have to review all this yeah. stuff if you want to screen it before it comes them. in, and you have to let them, which means you have to review it or, or you have to just give it to them without checking it which they're not going to do or you have to go through the burden of checking it which if it was just Dungeons and Dragons maybe you can get up to speed but are you going to have prisons responsible for screening every RPG yeah. and card game out there and keep in mind some of these games are very violent on purpose well, they're very designed to be too, some of them are very obscure some of them you know could you imagine get into subjects <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> but, but I think the thing that you really get into and again where I kind of bump into it that I think is and what our interesting piece about the piece about this is is to you know where it becomes interesting is 
is it is part of this because we look at it and say role playing games have this bad association with the occult mm-hmm. that grew out of the eighties, which you know is a moral panic, which there's a lot of argument that it has no connection with, which we've seen fall. I mean, there, there's arguments right now coming out of the fact that Harry Potter encourages yeah. the occult. There's arguments that Pokemon Go encourages the occult. You know, there, there's all sorts of arguments like that kind of stuff out there. Do we have this lingering? element of it. And the reason we particularly wanted to get into it, and the reason I think this episode is particularly sort of interesting to us, is this is one of the few places where we get into aspects of the sort of social pieces of geek culture, this occult accept, you know, yeah. association with geek culture hitting the legal system. The and that's stig- why we yeah. did this episode. The, the stigmatization of D&D in particular, which was then broadened to all role-playing games, yeah. I think sort of the legacy of that lingers on in these underlying decisions. And it's not it's not this decision specifically so much as you can point to prior cases where defendants could say with a straight face the dungeons and dragons made me do it yeah and like you know what if defendants are willing to blame dnd for their murderous activities themselves yeah and say that it caused even if it's ineffective even if it was ineffective but it's it's clearly in our social consciousness that it's a thing right yeah and so you know and, and the fact that it sort of trickled up into this decision that we're going to treat dnd for really no coherent reason different from other things that have all the same concerns it's like you said this sort of projected reflection of a very now outdated bias that nevertheless in 2011 uh, Glassman can't have Dungeons and Dragons he can't have the Lost Temple of Theradun yeah. or whatever the heck it was <laughs> and, and yeah and, and again I think that's you know from my point of view and, and I think the, the real takeaway from this episode is not to say that we want to second desk prison officials not to say that this isn't no. a reasonable determination no. from the we're courts we're talking about people whose job it is to manage a, a, a giant concrete box full of violent criminals yeah. I'm not going to second guess what they're doing <laughs> and, and but we're really looking at is saying this is one of the few areas, and it's the reason why we've got to focus in it on prisons, where we have a social aspect and a social treatment of an aspect of geek culture truly impacting into the law yeah. in an area where you that social aspect and that social treatment of it seems to be having an actual legal effect. Yeah. The idea that these things are potential, you know, social looks at them and says these are weird, they are a little risque on the side, they could potentially lead to this escapism, these dangerous behaviors. The court then looking at it and saying because of society thinks that, regardless of whether or not it's true, mm-hmm. we have to keep it away from prisoners because society thinks that, and because if society thinks it, the prisoners themselves may also think it. Um, it's it's an interesting impact. And again, that's I think the purpose of this episode and what we really kind of want to try to get across in this is this is one of the few areas, I think, where we have that kind of, of connection. Yeah, I can't think of anything else like this. I'm sure there is something. But this yeah. is such an oddly specific um, outcome and, you know, a lot of the times you and I, I mean, we're lawyers, it's our job to find a way to, to understand, right? Like, you know, whether whatever, whoever side of the case we're on, I need to understand my opponent's side of something so I know what arguments they're going to make, yeah. whether they're any good or not, right? And this is one of these situations where I, I feel like um, if we never had the 80s moral panic over RPGs, would this case come out the same way? Yeah, and, and that's really the question. Uh, but I think I think it's much less likely. Yeah. Because you can and, think of other things. I mean, do they allow pornography in prisons? Yeah, I think they have, at least in some respects. And again, I, I, I think Larry Flint challenged it at one point in time. Um, I mean, they do allow it in Congress because of the fact that he did challenge his ability to send it to Congress. <laughs> um, but those are, I think that, and again, what we're really kind of coming to here is we had a moral panic associated with this. We, you arguably still seeing the moral panic of the 80s falling out in yep. 2011. But it also then bumps into these aspects of geek culture of 
misunderstanding of it. We can argue yeah. going back all the way to it. The entire thing is based upon a misunderstanding I think all of, of this. I mean, the whole de- the mischaracterization of the relationship between the dungeon master and the players mm-hmm. is is the the root of all of this. And I think anybody who's played D anD D, you know, it's weird that it's both like. It doesn't mimic gang structure at all. Like you're you're adverse to the DM in a lot of senses. Yeah. I, I don't know. It, I, I find it just such an odd. It it was so jarring to read their characterization of there being hidden codes, and it, it was like something torn from the pages of of, of Time magazine in 1986. Yeah. You know, we're reading like you guys don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, and and particularly, yeah, and that's again, I think that's our purpose of sort of talking about this. This is why we sort of wanted to get into this as a second episode, and why this had to be the second half of this is because yeah. we needed to go through that first half. And if you guys haven't listened to the first half, and are potentially confused about what we're talking about here, definitely jump yeah, back to that the, first oh, half and go listen yeah. to the last episode on the moral panics and this association with you know RPGs and game and gaming generally um, with occultism with Satanism with negative behavior yeah I mean we didn't dive deep into those cases but we, we covered the, the overviews of it yep. um, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting little chapter in, in, uh, in the legal system uh, well we're, we're going to move on and do something uh, different for the last couple minutes here um, the uh, Star Wars 9 teaser trailer dropped second teaser trailer teaser, was it the second one? Oh, that's right yeah. there was the one at Star Wars Celebration or yeah. whatever at any rate uh, Kirk and I went out on the internet and found various predictions people are making and tweaked them a little bit. So we've got 15 Star Wars 9 predictions uh, that that are mostly by other people and some made up by me. Uh, We're going to go through those and and true-false them. I don't have a pen here, so I'll have to just remember. I'll go back and listen to this (laughs) later and write them down. Okay, so here we go. Uh, And you can play along at home and let us know how much more right you were than us. Here's (laughs) number one. You ready, Kirk? Yep. Mark Hamill appears on screen as a Force ghost. True. Yeah, I, th- I think so. I feel like there has to be a mirror to the end of episode six. <laughs> yes, unfortunately. Hamill has the Obi-Wan role. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, the other reason for it is, is I think they, they need him to appear as a Force ghost. They don't want him to appear as an actual character. He needs to be dead after eight, but they probably don't want him to be truly gone. Yeah. And the Force Ghost is the obvious way to do it. It completely fits with stuff that's happened in the past. Not going to be a problem to do. No, I mean, no fan's going to have any problem with him appearing as Luke as a Force Ghost. Of course, shouldn't he actually appear as Baby Luke, given what we did in the, spa- in the you know, special yeah. editions? <laughs> that's not canon. Uh, okay. Uh, number, number two, Princess Leia dies. True. I'm actually going to go with false. You're going to go with this. false and say she here's, does it. here's why. I think she's going to like be absorbed into the force somehow in a way that we wouldn't be able to definitively say is dead. Although in that sense, is Luke really dead? Yeah. I, I, again, I think she's going to die. I, I made the original prediction. It's, you pulled it out of this thing, which she will die off screen. Yeah. Um, you know, as to what it is, it's not part of the thing with it. I think part of the reason she will die is I have the feeling they probably have some footage they can use with her as a force ghost. Maybe, maybe, maybe they have Leia appear as the force. Yeah, Leia's the force ghost. I can also believe Leia yeah. will appear as a force ghost. I, and again, I'm kind of coming back to that end of Return of the Jedi yeah. force ghost scene. I can very well believe we're going to see Mark Hamill and Carrie Fisher appear as force ghosts in that scene. Number three, we find out who Ray's parents really, mm. really are. <laughs> Quite frankly, I don't care. I don't <laughs> it's either. Really it's, bad. It's such a, at this point, they've screwed it up so bad, I don't <laughs> I, care. I, I'm going to say yes. I'm going to say false in this because even if they tell us who they really are, I don't trust we, them we, we don't trust that it really, really is true. <laughs> yeah, they'll play with it later. So I, I'm going to say that they, I'll say they tell us who Ray's parents really, really are. Let's go with that. <laughs> okay. Um, so I'm saying true, you're saying false. Yep. All right, number four, we meet more Knights of Ren. I'm going to say true. I'm going to say true on this one, they too, actually. They may have actually been the trailers. I don't know. Um, well, we have the Red Stormtroopers 
in the in the trailers. Are those Knights of Ren? And that's the question is what are those red stormtroopers? What are they? Are they something that comes out of it? We know we have Knights of Ren from you know the Knights of Ren are the sort of they the additional us, yeah. the additional Jedi that that go with Ben. They're, they're all gone. Like they've never been mentioned again. Yeah. Since. And so uh, the question we sort of bump into, I think there will be some things out there. What I can believe is that one, it'll be left open as a here's our future villains. But there's also the possibility oh, yeah. of you know something where it's you know yeah we need to be sealed because we need to have some explanation for how we get something else into the canon. That yeah, I actually I put one in here before that said that they're going to introduce like a future villain for future trilogies. I bet yeah. this is it. It's these yeah, guys. that's a possibility. Is I can believe a Knight of Ren will become a future villain for future trilogy. All right, number five, Snoke is back. No, no, I'm going to say false. I'm going to say true, but it's going to be in a roundabout way. Like, they're going to, and we'll get to this later, but they're going to either, like, travel through time or it's going to be, like, Snoke is actually Palpatine or something <laughs> if, if like that. If we're going to travel through time and then we, we have to, like, put, you know, caveats on all of these. My, my take with Snoke is I think they truly want Snoke to be dead. Part of the reason I think they want Snoke to be dead is because we have hinted at Emperor Palpatine in conjunction yeah. with the trailers. Unless they're the same person somehow, which would that be could super be the case. lame, but I think um, it's I've heard that, I'm, you know, theorized before. So. I'm going to say I'm gonna say true. Snoke yep. is back somehow. Six. Kylo Ren is redeemed and becomes Ben Solo. Yep, yeah. at least when he becomes a Force yeah. Ghost at the end. Yep, yep, true. <laughs> Seven, Finn and Rose become a thing. This one, I think, is hard, quite frankly. I think so, because they've they've really avoided any kind of overt romance in most of the Star Wars movies, yep. except for a little bit in Empire with the love triangle, which was yep. really underplayed. And then the only other one was Han Solo and Kira in the Solo movie. Yeah. So My thing I wouldn't with be this surprised one, if they leave this pretty tame. Yeah, partially just because of rating and stuff like that and their audience. My take with this is, quite frankly, I'd love to see it happen. That'd be fun. I would like to see them actually do this. I think it would be fun as to what it would be. It could be a very interesting storyline. I don't think they know what to do with Finn's character. I'm not sure they know what to do with Finn's character, which is also, I'm not sure they know what to do with Rose's character after episode eight either. Yeah. Um, and so it's one of those things where- Episode eight had a really final feel to it. Like, yeah. Like they could have just ended the new trilogy there. Yeah, sort of. I mean, except you do leave a, the few obvious cliffhangers. Yeah. But the, the thing that I had sort of with Finn and Rose, the reason I think Finn and Rose becomes a thing is a, is a very interesting question is- I feel like this is something they'd like to do, but every attempt at romance they've made has not gone well. Attack of the Clones. Um, You know, let's take a certain scene that we all talk about in in episode two. Um, They're clumsy at it. And so I've got to wonder if they're just going to sweep it under the rug because they don't trust themselves to do it. Yeah. Uh, the, The only time the romance has really been successful is when they keep it at like... Not even a PG-13 level, yeah. like, like Saturday afternoon special level. Um, yep. All right, uh, number eight, Captain Phasma becomes more than a prop. <laughs> you know, I mean, we all love Captain Phasma. My take she's of this the is, Boba Fett of the series. Everybody's Boba obsessed with her because she's got a cool costume, which doesn't do anything. My, my take of Captain Phasma is no, but I do will predict, and I'm going to predict it now, in the next 20 years of the continued universe, she will have her own series. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Gwendolyn Christie, she's great. She's so wasted here. Uh, I know, and, it's, it, and she's, it has the potential to be a fun character. I could totally believe they're going to do something with her in the future, but I don't think it's going to be in this movie. Number nine, there's another Death Star to blow up. And I'm going to say, it doesn't have to literally be called the Death Star. <laughs> it just is functionally Star killer the race. Death Star. Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to say false. <laughs> Wait, Fa- Captain Phasma, you said true or false? What? I said false, at least in this movie. I'm going to say false also. Okay, number nine, another Death Star. I'm going to say false. There's not a Death Star to blow up, but there (laughs) obviously is already a blowed up one that they're going to go see. (laughs) Yes, and I think that means is that there's there's something which must be blown up in order to resolve the plot. That may be the most most Star Wars thing ever, that we take the blowed up Death Star and (laughs) blow it up again somehow. (laughs) Exactly. 
Um, I, my t- I'm gonna I'm gonna do this thing. I'm going to say true. Oh, no. And I'm going to say true because I'm not sure they know how to end the series otherwise. I don't think they do either. We'll get to that in a second. Uh, number ten, Harrison Ford appears on screen. Again, I'm gonna say true as a force ghost. Yeah, I don't know if he's a force ghost. I'm gonna say true because this is this is the final send off for all these characters. Yeah, uh, that's why I think they're all gonna have an appearance somehow on screen. I think a lot of it's gonna be force ghost. It's gonna be some kind of a, a thing at the end, which is basically uh, yeah a, a thanks type of. It could be like know, a hologram scene. or something, like a message yeah. he left or something. I don't know. There'll be there'll be yeah, something. A fan else. service scene for nothing else. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Eleven, a major character other than Leia dies. You, you know my theory on this, and I have a theory that two of them are going to die. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it is Ray and Kylo Ren. See, I don't agree. I think they're both going to survive. That is, that is, I am making the theory that both of them are going to die. So not just one major character, but two. If you hit on both of those, I'll give you double credit for that one. <laughs> uh, number 12, a character from the prequel trilogy who was not also in the original trilogy appears on screen. So this has to be like a Jar Jar Binks <laughs> or a Qui-Gon Jinn who was not also in the originals and yep. not a character from Rogue One or the Solo movie either. <sighs> it's a tough one. My take in this is is true, but one of those things in it is it's do we have any of the actors associated? You know, have we seen any spoilers of any of the actors Palpatine being associated with in, it? In uh, um, Mc, uh, McDiarmid, but yeah. he was in the original trilogy too. So yeah, so count. we've definitely got some sort of things with that. You know, could could he appear as himself? I think the answer to this is probably going to be yes. We're going to see a character from the prequel trilogy. I'm not sure it's not somebody who's going to be in the original trilogy. I think that's the yeah. my joke of Baby Luke, um, you know, or Baby Anakin, um, you know, sort of stuff like that. Where How we, about this? An actor? Like, like, is there a Hayden Christensen appearance? Yeah, well, there could be Jar Jar as a computer-generated character as well. But First ghost Jar Jar. <laughs> Jar Binks, yeah. <laughs> Turns out the drunken master theory is true. That would have been amazing <laughs> if that's where it ended up and you're like, it was Jar Jar all this time. <laughs> um, but yeah, the um, I think the issue of this is we're going to see a character from the prequel trilogy, but I think it's going to be somebody who appear, whose character appears in the original trilogy, though they may appear as the actor not in the original trilogy. Okay, this, the next one is is, is my J.J. Abrams special. They never <laughs> explain the remaining hanging threads from The Force Awakens. I'm thinking of a couple things in particular. One is how Maz Kanata got Luke's lightsaber. Yeah, it was the obvious play into it was important as to what it is. I think they actually are going to resolve this one. I do. All right. The um, other one is Kylo Ren has a remark in The Force Awakens where he says, show me, grandfather, show me again the power of the dark side. And implying that he had some prior epiphany involving Darth Vader or something, and they just dropped that and yeah. never went anywhere with it. So, Because Vader was redeemed, so why would he be back showing Kylo Ren anything unless he's being manipulated by somebody? Yeah. Uh, and that, that whole thing never went anywhere. I think they're not going to explain that one. I, think I don't think they will either. too much of a throwaway. But. All right, so there may be half credit for this one. We'll say those are the two, the lightsaber and the, the show me again grandfather line. Yep. Okay, uh, 14... I editorialize on this one. One of the following <laughs> terrible ideas will pl- <laughs> which, which gives you both of our opinions on these ideas. One of the following terrible ideas will play a role in the plot. A, someone will time travel. B, someone is actually a clone. C, Somebody someone is actually a clone, Finn. Someone is Boba Fett's son or daughter. Finn is a clone. We don't know that. He's a stormtrooper. That doesn't mean he's a clone. <laughs> the pre the clones are not canon. We we do know that there actually could be clones that are not from the stormtroopers yeah. who are not clones, yes. Um, and what's the third one? Someone is Boba Fett's son or daughter. So, um, so 
somebody will try and pebble. I'm just going to put it by the editorial. I can't. I hope not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like I said, these are all terrible ideas. I don't mind a flashback, you know, something that does a flashback. I don't mind something that does a dream sequence kind of like we saw. The I've definitely heard theories in conjunction with the, you know, when you see Ray with the double red lightsaber and the truth that that is a cave-like sequence like mm-hmm. Luke in the cave in Empire. I can very well believe we're going to see flashback, dream sequence, something along those lines. We see those regularly. I hope we don't see actual time travel, um, partially because I really don't want them to introduce time travel as canon in the Star Trek, uni- in Star-, Star Wars universe. The, the, the reason I think this is possible is because there's one, Palpatine's there. Yep. And two, there is precedence in the expanded universe for Palpatine having the ability. It may have even been in the in the animated series, yep. uh, Rebels or something, but there's some reference to him having the ability to use the Force to travel through time. Yeah, I believe it's in Rebels. I haven't seen Rebels yet, but I believe that's where there is a reference in Rebels yeah. or something like that of the idea with it. My thing with it is, is it's, I think you don't need it. I think you can readily have Palpatine be strong enough to survive the Death Star explosion. Which is also in the expanded back. universe, right? Like, he made clones of himself and transferred his conscience yeah. into them. And-, and and the idea I even had with this is quite... I mean, he's he's the most powerful Sith Lord that sort of ever existed in even the expanded universe in many respects. Well, and he also hints that Darth Plagueis, whoever that was, yeah. could, could create life. So could maybe create he could create life. And that's where I think you can come into the thing and basically say, if you want to bring Palpatine back, and there's definitely hints of the Palpatine's back, you don't need him to time travel. You can make him powerful enough to yeah. have survived there's Way to write erosion, yeah, and I would think that that's a much better way to do it, quite frankly. Yeah, I've also uh, the the guys that do Red Letter Media, which is a great uh, great movie review site if you haven't read it, but they they speculated that there's evidence in the trailer to think that maybe there's time travel involved. Uh, one one of them is that at the end of Jedi, the Death Star blows up very convincingly, well, especially <laughs> in the special edition. Yeah, uh, I mean it, it is vaporized. Yeah. It, it is it is space dust at that point. But then there's this giant, massive, two hundred mile long stretch of it landing somewhere that we've seen in the tra- in the maybe, preview. Maybe that's not the Death Star. Maybe that's a new Death Star that's being built, or <laughs> or maybe that's maybe that's from when it's being. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, but and that's, that's I, I get the things with it. I the can, real takeaway is that would be awful. It would be awful. I really and, and again, I think you can retcon anything into this without needing time travel. Um, because you have people who can manipulate anything. Yeah. Let's not have them be time travelers. You have space wizards. You don't need time travel. Yeah, and as people have said, is it's, you know, they needed to, the, you know, there's a lot of argument that J.K. Rowling made a mistake when she introduced time travel into the Harry Potter universe. And she only introduced it in a very limited fashion, mm-hmm. you know, and that... I, I really was one of those things where I think it's, you know, time travel is the last refuge of the failed writing the attempt. cornered writer. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, in... Star can, Trek Four did it fine. Certain it st- was a good movie yeah. by itself. Star Trek is actually one of the few that I think has done it very, very well. And I always comment, if anybody hasn't read it, the very first Star Trek novel, The Entropy Effect... Um, I would highly recommend reading as how to do time travel correctly because there are scenes throughout Entropy Effect. So there's like a scene where like Kirk sees Spock walk by the, by the door to the transporter and he chases after him because he needs to talk to him and he comes and he can't find him and he's like, what the hell? You know, he didn't do that. And then he goes on and later he finds him you know, and that kind of thing. And he talks, and he's just talking with him. It turns out that Spock ends up going back in time. He walks past the transporter room. Kirk sees the going back in time person. Every occurrence that happens between the interactions of the characters in time travel that occurs after the time travel occurs two-thirds of the way through the book already occurred. Yeah. On that note— And it's a great way to do it. (laughs) 
Um, on that note, uh, The Star is My Destination, another book that's not really about time travel, but handles the topic very well. Yeah. Um, it's The Count of Monte Cristo in space. Uh, number 15, we learn at least, uh, Mr. Typo here, we learn at least one new thing <laughs> that changes our understanding of the original or prequel trilogy. So an obvious one would be that Palpatine is still alive, but we know from the expanded universe so he can come back. So something besides that, something where like, like once we go back and rewatch the original trilogy, it means something completely yeah. different from what we thought. Yeah, mitochondrians don't actually they have any force powers yeah you know th- that that kind of thing so it was it, a sensor error it's a sensor error <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah great explanation I, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna say <laughs> true because this would be a very jj abrams thing to do it is a very jj abrams thing to do i also think that it's i would say true as well and the reason i'm gonna say true is because i think star wars has been very into filling out things that the fans would just like to have filled out and the yeah. example i use is rogue one Tarkin is really a character and he's a char- he fits his character it expands his character he's very interesting he's very fun in a way that makes Tarkin in Star Wars make more sense yeah all of a sudden his staying with the Death Star makes so much more sense it was his baby it was his baby but it's also the he truly believes he has the most powerful thing in the world he Vader's force is just this wizardy power that nobody cares about mm-hmm. he believes in military might he believes he has the most powerful thing and this is just a distraction and that's the you know and that's you know that line you know abandoned you know abandoned his ship and you know, a moment, moment of triumph in a moment of triumph is, is such a great sort of statement of his character and it was a great statement of his character in Star Wars and I think Tarkin was one of those characters in Star Wars that a lot of fans really enjoyed and when they went back in Rogue One they basically made him the character everybody wanted him to be yeah without doing a lot of him and Even that's, then, I think, though, like, they're like, going to do something Rogue like One, that. I thought, did about the best job of, of filling these story gaps yeah um, but it's still whenever you have a move something like this you you, you it, it can't be done perfectly. Yeah. So well, like thinking, the timing doesn't make any sense with the Pantanti four at the end. Uh, no, it doesn't. <laughs> doesn't quite work. Um, but like the thing I'm thinking of is uh, right before that line Tarkin says, where where they tell him to leave. The yeah. guy walks up to him and says, "We've analyzed their attack, and there is a danger." How would they know that? Yeah. The the, the the flaw was deeply hidden in the structure of the Death Star, and they had to go. The rebels had to go break into that that base on what was it called? Yeah, Cardiff or the heck the planet was called. But, but it's also once they had the plans, they knew there was a weakness. Maybe they, they knew where to look. Like, why are they flying down this trench? Yeah. You know, like, and I think like, that's the thing is like, they fly oh, down the trench. They go. They know they're launching. Throw some torpedoes. plywood over that hole. <laughs> yeah, they know they're launching torpedoes. You know, yeah. potentially. And so I think it's the kind of thing where it's like, hey, it turns out that this trench does lead someplace it shouldn't. You know, we found the same thing the rebels did. You yep. know, once we knew to look for it. We weren't looking yeah. for it once we knew to look for it because that's what they're attacking. We figured it out. Yep. Um, all right. So one new thing I'm going to say true. <laughs> I'm going to say true just because I think that they're so into doing it right now yeah. in conjunction with the Star Wars and I think it, I'm going to go a little one step further and I'm going to say I think it's going to tie something up in the prequel trilogy interesting and, and the reason I'm going to say that enough to know what all the open threads are the there. reason I'm going to say that is because I think from a, a purely business point of view and it's interesting because I was just listening to another podcast about how there's a lot of discussions of the business of movies and less discussion of what happens in the movies now but from a purely business point of view, the, the fans don't particularly like the original trilogy, or sorry, the, the prequel trilogy compared to the original trilogy. I can very well see them sort of putting something in that says, hey, let's treat the prequel trilogy in a slightly different light, mm-hmm. just so it's not quite as maligned. And, yeah. and again, that's the kind of thing that I'm going to sort of put in there, is so I could believe that, they'd do that. That would be an interesting coup. If they could do something in this 
in this movie Let me try. <laughs> that would that would make the prequel seem better somehow. Yeah. That would be a, 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 a Skill. I would very well believe they're going to try. Whether or yeah. not it's going to work, I think is another question entirely. But I can I, just, I, I like Abrams as a director. He adds like a lot Jeff of excitement, kinetic energy. Um, his movies are fun to watch. I don't like him as much as a, he writes the best first acts. <laughs> <laughs> he does write fantastic first acts. Yes. But but like most people, he's terrible at third acts because third acts are hard to write. I'm not being. I can't write them either. I'm not being. You know. I'm not bragging about something I can do that that he can't. But um, I'm just thinking like Lost. Like the the first season of Lost is one. Of the best first seasons of any oh, yeah. show I've ever saw. And quite frankly, so are the second and third season. Second season's not bad. It starts <laughs> to lose some some juice. I think you make it through season. the third season. I think the fourth season's when it starts to go off the rails. Yeah, but uh, the ending was just really unsatisfying. I just I think it's hard to end a show. We saw this with Game of Thrones. We've seen it with a lot of things. It's hard to end a show when when almost every fan theory is more interesting than what you came up with. <laughs> and you need to read the boards more. Yeah. So all right, so those are our fifteen. Uh, we'll see how that goes. We're running real long. We so need to wrap this up. Uh, next week, I don't know what our t- or not next week, next episode. Who knows when that's going to be at this point. Uh, not sure what the topic is. Uh, we have been so f- some requests, I know, from some people who sent me some uh, some follow up things saying they'd like an episode that's a little less academic, um, just as a little bit of a break of something. Because as one of them put it, they're learning too much law. All right, <laughs> maybe we can do like a, a potpourri, like because I've got a whole folder full of like cool legal things that have come out that that we could just talk about what those things are. Each one's worth maybe you know two minutes of discussion. Yep. So maybe we can do that. Um, so I don't know, we'll figure it out. Uh, if if we don't uh, come up with anything else, we'll do we'll do the potpourri and just kind of run through some some things that have happened in the yep. last couple. And of we months. may also talk about a sort of we talked about the idea of doing a movies episode just because I've managed to see quite a bit of movies. I know you have as well. We haven't been a while since we've done. Yeah, I don't know as if, well. if we talked about because you saw both of the. Uh, I'm caught up in the Marvel universe. Sort yeah, of. so we got that to cover if we haven't yet. All right, uh, there's the music. It's time to go. Check out our website at lggpodcast.com and it has links to our various platforms where you can download prior episodes and get in touch with us. Uh, get in touch with us on Twitter, on Facebook, by email. Subscribe to this podcast on the platforms. Give us a review that helps new listeners find us. Tweet out our content, promote us, uh, do free work. You can find me on Twitter at Benjamin Siders and Kirk at Kirk DMN. That is all for today. We'll see you next time. Lorem, play us out. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Lewis Rice LLC, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. This podcast was produced and recorded at Cool Fire Studios in St. Louis, Missouri. 